Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of The Political Party. This features Professor Philip Tetlock from the University of Pennsylvania. Lots of you will already be familiar with his work because of books like Expert Political Judgment and Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction. A lot of you will have heard him, of him rather, uh, because Dominic Cummings has recommended his work and Michael Gove is a big fan of him. I'm delighted that he came on this show and this is... This really is like going to the best university in the world and being taught by one of the best professors. This is all about the art of super forecasting. Those people that can more accurately predict particular events in the future than other people and how you can train yourself to think in a different way to make your predictions more accurate. Now, obviously, on a, on a geopolitical scale, the implications of this work are really profound. Um, but I also wonder, and I talked to Philip about this, about just the implication for your everyday life if you start to engage in these sorts of projects. This is fascinating about how the mind works, about how we think about problems, about how we solve problems, about how you can break down questions into other questions that help you answer it. This is just endlessly, endlessly fascinating. I began by asking Professor Tetlock, um, that apart from being motivated by a desire to know the future, where his passion for super forecasting came from. Well, it's a, it's a long story, and it's hard for me to tell the story without revealing just exactly how old I am, and, and that's pretty old. Um, it, it got started in the mid-1980s, uh, before Mikhail Gorbachev became general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, uh, there was a very vigorous debate about um, within the Reagan administration uh, with, with, and between critics uh, with the, of the administration and, and supporters in the U.S. and elsewhere internationally about whether U.S. policy was uh, driving the Soviets into neo-Stalinist retrenchment and would they, they become even more aggressive when uh, Chernyenko passed away. Uh, and so there's a big debate and, uh, I, I, um, I was interested in monitoring, um, the predictions that, that people were making. And I was serving on a committee in DC. I was a pretty young professor back then. Um, see 1984, I would have been 30 years old. Uh, I was pretty, I was, I was a junior member of this committee that was looking into us Soviet relations. And I started tracking the predictions that hawks and dubs, liberals and conservatives and so forth were making about the trajectory of where, where the Soviet Union was going, where relations between the, the West and the Soviet Union would be going. And one of the, one of the curious things I, I discovered was that um, very few people, almost no one, a couple of exceptions, but almost no one got it right. And after the fact, after Gorbachev came to power and proved to be a pretty radical liberal reformer uh, by 1986, 
virtually nobody thought they got it wrong. Uh, they all had a reason why they essentially predicted what they hadn't predicted. Uh, and then and the liberals were saying, well, you know, of course, the Soviet economy is collapsing. Reagan has nothing to do with it. They had, they had to go this direction. And the conservatives were saying, huh, look, we, they're, they're blinking. We made them blink. Even though previously they, a lot of them were saying it's a, it's a totalitarian system. It's, it's never going to change. So there were, there were a few people who got it right, but almost everybody got it wrong. But, but, almost every, but virtually everybody did think they got it right by 1986. So there was this, it was almost as though you're in a situation where it was an outcome irrelevant learning situation. Everybody was able to claim that they nailed it. Uh, and I, I thought that was, um, that was disturbing, I thought. Uh, it was hard to imagine a higher stakes policy debate, right? It was essentially, you know, nuclear war is yeah. <laughs> a pretty big deal. Um, so I, I decided it would be worth um, pursuing this as a, as, a, as a major facet of my research program. Also, I'd just gotten tenure around that time. And, you know, when, once you get tenure, you have to face a kind of a life decision about you. Um, they're going to they're going to they're not going to fire me <laughs> I've, I've, I've got a job for a long time um what, what do i want to do with it and uh, forecasting tournaments stretch out over decades right so it's a very long-term commitment so is it fair to say this this passion um was was born slightly out of frustration with political pundits and their ineffectiveness it's true um, ineffectiveness. It's true that they're, it's it's their evasiveness. It's a combination. It's they're they're so evasive, and they they they've mastered the art of appearing to go out on a limb without actually going out on a limb. They, they, there's it's it's a, it's a rhetorical art form. Uh, they managed to say things like, uh, you know, there, there's a distinct possibility of a nuclear war. There's a distinct possibility of a, of a pandemic. There, there are lots of distinct possibilities. And if, if the possibility materializes, they say, I told you, distinct possibility. And if it doesn't, they say, I merely said it was possible. So they, 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 they're, they're much better at it than I just described. I mean, but, but that's distinct possibility is one of my favorite vague verbiage phrases because it covers both sides of maybe so neatly. There's vagueness, but then there's something else which you do touch on in, in, in super forecasting is that some pundits will make predictions for political purposes, not necessarily that they think that thing will happen, but they're advancing that particular argument to apply pressure somewhere. So it's not that they necessarily are saying this will definitely happen. They're saying it to apply pressure to a particular leader or a particular movement. Sure, there are lots of forecasters who are carrying water for one or another ideological cause, um, and when 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 they falter, uh, it they're 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 on, they're on, it's like it's like a team sport, and their 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 fellow their teammates should are supposed to back them up and say, oh well, you're really being unfair to X because X didn't really say that X really. <laughs> So it's part of part of part of a team sport that if if a member of your conservative team falters on something, you your fellow conservatives should back them up and vice versa. So before we we get into what super forecasting is and and the the attributes that super forecasters have, people listening to this podcast now will, will wonder if they possess the the raw ability to become a super forecaster. What are the attributes that that all super forecasters share? Mm. Well, there is an element of, of uh, ability involved. Um, it, it, hel- it helps to be analytic, logical, uh, good pattern detector. Those, those, those things matter. 
Um, but it's not just a matter of intelligence. I think you know, most reasonably intelligent people are capable of becoming pretty good at this. Uh, and uh, there, there are two key ingredients beyond a baseline level of intelligence. One of them is uh, what we call cognitive style, uh, a degree of active open-mindedness, a willing to treat your beliefs as testable propositions, not as sacred possessions. Uh, and the other is a certain amount of gritty granularity, um, a willingness to, to, to um, treat forecasting skill as a skill that um, can be cultivated and is worth cultivating. So how, how many degrees of maybe am I capable of distinguishing? Um, and am I willing to test myself and get repeated feedback? Am I willing to get hit on the head repeatedly? <laughs> uh, because you're, you're going you're to encounter a lot of frustration when you start off in this and you start testing how well calibrated you are on, on, on the kinds of questions that are asked in these tournaments. It's, it's going to be pretty frustrating at first. You're, you're, you're going to get you're going to get bopped on the nose a number of times. It's, it's, it's going to be ego bruising kind of experience. Just on the first point of the two, it seems particularly relevant now when we talk about things like echo chambers and, and the fact those things perhaps have been augmented by social media. Do you think it's fair to say that, and you've been running this project, as you say, since 1984, do you think it's fair to say that people are less open-minded now or, or less likely to behave in an open-minded way, to be less actively open-minded in 2020? Um, you know... Uh, I think things do look rather bitter and polarized <laughs> now in 2020. But when I go back to 1984, 85, things were pretty bitter and polarized then yes. too. So you don't want to, you know, we don't want to idealize the past. Um, people were, you know, Reagan was a very polarizing political figure. Not as I don't think he was quite as intensely polarizing as Trump. Uh, that, but it's easy to misremember, you know, there's, there's a certain kind of halo effect has emerged around Reagan, but he, he was bitterly opposed and, you know, what did Mitterrand called him, the cowboy. Uh, <laughs> it, it, he, he was not held in universal esteem. Yeah. He, he was regarded as, um, you know, a, a grade B Hollywood actor, an extremist, a Goldwaterite, a, da a dangerous guy. And, and um, he, he, he was on the radio right once and he, he made that announcement about the, you know, the missiles, we're going to launch the missiles now or something like that. He, you know, he did, he, um, and there were huge demonstrations in New York in favor of nuclear freeze. And there were, there were a lot, there was, there was a lot, that, that, that he developed this relationship with Gorbachev, of course, that, 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 that turned things around and then, and, and the Cold War rapidly, um, to, to, disappeared um, as, as by, by, by the end of the Reagan administration. It essentially was no Cold War. Um, and the Soviet bloc was in the process of disintegrating. So when you're uh, thinking about forecasting, there, are, there must be limits to predictability. There are certain things that can't be predicted. Is that always about um, chronology or, or, or time you know that it's harder to predict something that's going to happen in 100 years than it is to predict something that's going to happen in 100 minutes and what are the other limits that exist on predictability mm. that is a great question <laughs> you, know, you, 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 you know you never you never know how it, you know, there's an old saying, I think, from the Proverbs of Hell from William Blake, that you never know you've had enough until you've had more than enough. <laughs> um, it, it, how far is it reasonable to push the forecasting agenda? Mm. Um, things happen that are out of the blue. Um, now, 
I've been in these exchanges about black swans and tail risks and, and, and things like this. And, and, and yes, I mean, the, uh, assassinations and pandemics and thing, things, things get flipped around, can be flipped around quite dramatically. I mean, how, how close did we come to nuclear war during the Cold War, for example? Mm. We haven't really worked that out. There's still a very active debate on that subject. Some people think we came extremely close and we were extremely lucky to have gotten through the Cold War without it becoming a thermonuclear war. And other people say, you know, it really wouldn't, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and this and that, they, they point to the various incidents where, where we seem to be just a trigger press away from, from, a, from a nuclear war. And they say, well, that's really not true. And then they have their reasons for, for saying why it's not true. Uh, these all pivot on counterfactuals. Uh, and it, so people can walk away from you know, 40 years of experience and they can take very, very different lessons from them. Some people think nuclear deterrence is remarkably robust and has saved hundreds of millions of lives from, from conventional wars that otherwise would have occurred. And other people think we've been walking on a tightrope and we've just been <laughs> really, really lucky. <laughs> um, it's hard to imagine a, 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 a more, more starkly different readings of history than that. Uh, one of the things we, we've looked at recently, we turned to, the, these counterfactuals are frustrating, of course, because nobody can go back and rerun history. We don't know if we rerun the tape of history from 1945 on, how many times does nuclear war erupt? And you say, well, you know, it turns out nuclear war only erupts 1% of the time, or it actually erupts 30% of the time, but even 1% of the time is <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty worrisome. Um, but nobody knows the answer. They're making up the data. We, we don't know. Counterfactual history is... Is, is inherently speculative and, and imaginative. So one of the things we've been looking at is whether people who uh, make really aggressive, extreme counterfactual claims, who claim to know exactly how counterfactual history would have worked out, whether they tend to be, are they good bets to be bad forecasters? Mm. So if you really know for sure how much worse the COVID epidemic or how much better it would have been if Hillary had been president, or if you really are sure you know that, how, how, that if, if China had had, had a, as free a press as Taiwan, that the epidemic would not have been as severe. If you, if you are certain you know the answer to these questions, it, it, we, we suspect that you're more likely to be a bad forecaster. Why is that? It, it, it ties into this open-mindedness thing. Um, it, it, it's, the, it's, the, it's the confidence with which people take something that's very computationally complex. I mean, imagine trying to rerun history in your head the millions of variables that are actually involved in recreating a world. Yes. <laughs> it's computationally staggeringly complex and people sort of, sort of glibly say, oh yeah, it would be, we'd have 50% fewer debt if Hillary were president. And if China had had a free press, he'd have 30% fewer debt or you know, whatever, um, you know, glib claim comes out of their mouths. Uh, it's, it's the glibness, it's the rapidity, it's the confidence uh, with which people make claims like that, that, um, is an indicator that you're likely not to, you're, you're, gonna, you're going to struggle in a forecasting tournament in which we can actually check your accuracy. You use a really good early example in your book, and I have to say, <laughs> I carried on reading the book, feed, and I, I can't figure this thing out, and I feel really stupid, but I've, I've got to ask you about it. It's the example of the bat and a ball costing $1.10, mm-hmm. and one of them costs a dollar, so how much does the other thing cost? And I thought it was 10 cents, but... 
Apparently the answer is five cents, and I can't figure that out. Can you please explain <laughs> it? <laughs> and secondly, well, am I stupid for not being able to figure that out? No, not at all. Not at all. It, it, it's, it's not really a measure of intelligence. It's, it's more it's a measure of cognitive impulsivity. <laughs> okay. That's a polite way of saying it, I suppose. <laughs> so how... How does that how does that equation work then, where you end up with five cents? Well, you know, so you got a dollar ten, and if if you were right, and the bat costs a dollar and the ball costs ten cents, then the bat costs ninety cents more than the than 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 the ball, not a dollar more. Oh, it's about how many it costs more. Oh my god! So it needs to be a dollar five and five cents. Hang on, I'm not. You know what? Actually, I just want to be absolutely clear. I've understood this. Okay, so the 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 bat is a dollar and five, and the ball is five cents. Yeah, but but ninety nine percent of the world comes out with your answer. It's only a, a moderately small fraction of people who say, "Hmm, well, my tempting answer is a dollar and ten cents." You know, one dollar and ten cents. But um, you you have to think twice. So it's. It, it's, it's a test that Shane Frederick and I think Danny Kahneman co- collaborated on and developing. And um, it's a very ingenious test. It is only three items. And it proves to be a surprisingly good predictor of, um, of people becoming super forecasters. So I would be a bad super forecaster then? Well, it's just one item. <laughs> <laughs> know, it's the most basic. It's the easiest item to figure out. So maybe, maybe I've fallen at the first hurdle. Although I do try and be actively open-minded i do follow accounts on social media that i really disagree with and i do consume media that is opposite to my political view so maybe maybe that principle might save me oh absolutely being 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 an information omnivore is good um you know exposing yourself to dissonant sources of information and also the other thing that's a positive indicator for you being a super, super forecaster man is is that um you're interested in, in this. So even just having an interest in it makes you more yeah. likely to be good at it, I suppose. I mean, you're, you're curious enough, to, you're, you're, you're wondering, hmm, how, how good could my subjective probability judgments of events become? Um, and that's a starting point. Well, at least, at least I'm at the starting point. At least I'm on the pitch. <laughs> I can assure you from my book sales that most people do not reach that point. <laughs> well, that's good to know. You use a phrase that's, that's really, I find it so insightful. And I've really thought about the way that I answer questions as a result of this is the bait and switch where we don't answer the question we're being asked. We answer what we think the question is really about. Um, is that just a, a is that a product of evolution? Is that a way of rationalizing the world we live in? Oh, I, I you know, I, I'm not an evolutionary psychologist by trade, but you know, I, I, it's hard for me not to believe that there is some something rather deep wired in us that we, we have we have to be pretty sensitive to status cues in judging others and and. I mean, I, I, I think we're more likely to survive in, 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 in group life if, if we're good at figuring out who has higher status and figuring out that we should be, we should be deferential toward them. Um, and in, in, in the news world, in the media world, there are status hierarchies. Uh, now, liberals and conservatives have somewhat different status hierarchies, but um, there, there, there are status hierarchies. And uh, it, it's much easier to, to, to say to yourself, 
instead of going through the details of an argument of on, on, on the op-ed page of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal that say, oh my goodness, this is this is written by a prestigious expert who has, you know, hangs out in Davos and um, has a, is linked to some prestigious university or is very rich and is very well well connected and has all these accoutrements of status. So you, you can pick up all those clues very quickly uh, and, and say, hmm, I should give some serious weight to this as opposed to dissecting the argument in detail and figuring out, you know, whether or not um, a, a particular tax proposal is a good or a bad idea. But when we're being asked something, I'm trying to think of a good example now of, of what a good example this would be of a bait and switch of being asked. I suppose Trump is a good example. Um, when you're asked something about Donald Trump and what you're really answering is, do you like him or not, rather than the factual nature of the question being put? Yeah, I think that's right. He's such a polarizing figure. It's very difficult for people even to hear him anymore. I mean, it's done. Uh, yeah. So when we think about expert political judgment, it, it feels like one of the one of the messages of, of your work is, and maybe I'm wrong, that being ideological is a hindrance to being a good forecaster of the future. Yes, it is. Um, it, 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 it means you're giving too much weight to your um, to your preconceptions. So after the Cold War, after the Reagan, all the Reagan Gorbachev stuff, uh, we asked people um, a counterfactual question. We, we, we said to them, um, if, if Reagan hadn't been elected president in 1980 in the United States, if, if there'd been a, a Jimmy Carter second term with a Mondale follow-up, if liberal Democrats had dominated the 1980s, the Soviet Union would have disintegrated pretty much in exactly the same way it did in the 1980s. Um, as opposed to the other counterfactual would be, if, if, if no Reagan, uh, you know, the Soviet, U Soviet Union continues. Um, and you look at the answers people give to that question. That, this is a kind of another one of these counterfactuals. We can't rerun the tape of history from 1980 and figure out how many times you know USSR st sticks, sticks around under Jimmy Carter. We can't do that. Um, but the correlation be between the, the people's answers to that, you know, these are sophisticated political observers now. They're not. They're not the mass citizens. These are you know the, the super attentive public. The correlation between that and political ideology is as high as the correlation that different measures of political ideology have with each other. So the answers to the counterfactual are in effect, a measure of ideology. <laughs> it's as though they're just taking their ideology and plugging it in. <laughs> um, and, and no. There's some, so many great insights from your work. One of which um, is the relationship between fame and the accuracy of predictions. And the more famous you are, the less likely you are to be accurate. That was an early result in, from expert political judgment. And, and that's right. Um, and it, 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 it connects to the things that make people attractive to the media. Uh, you're going to be more attractive as an interview subject if you don't talk like me. Uh, <laughs> if, you, uh, if you if you say, I, I say, but, however, I, th I qualify a lot of my, my claims. And that, and that doesn't make me a good a source of media soundbite material. Uh, it's, it's moreover, sells better than however. Um, it, someone who's amplifying the message over and over, boom, boom, not only this, but this and this and this, that's why it's this way. As opposed to, well, you know what? 
there is instability in Saudi Arabia, but on the other hand, blum, 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 blum. Uh, so, you know, which, which, which expert is going to get invited back? The one who predicts that Saudi Arabia is going to have a violent military coup and there's going to be major disruptions in the Middle East, or the one who says, on the one hand, you know, the, either is instability, on the other hand, the Saudi regime has been very effective at co-opting opposition, but you, know, <laughs> you, you get the idea. Uh, what we, the, 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 second, the second expert has, always, has probably lost you after the first or second, however, but the first expert with moreover, 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 has got you on a narrative line toward, you know, you've got an interesting story about what's going to happen in the Middle East. I wonder if there's something else as well, as well as people who are more definite being more likely to become famous pundits and, and get more airtime for the reasons you describe. Is it perhaps also true that the more famous people get, that in itself is a factor in, in developing poor judgment, that perhaps they become more detached from society, they become, they question themselves less because they're becoming successful. Yeah, it's a huge ego trip. It, it feeds on their narcissism and narcissism feeds it, it, uh, feeds rigidity and it, you get into kind of a self-fulfilling feedback loop there. Um, I certainly feel I've observed that in some people. <laughs> so yes, uh, but I, I don't have hard data on the subject. I, I don't think anyone has hard data on it, but it would be very implausible that what you said is not true. <laughs> <laughs> well qualified. Um, one of the points you make. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> one of the points you make is the difference between political thinking and politicized thinking. How would you describe the difference in those two things? Politicized thinking, I think, is when you allow your politics to shape where you set your thresholds of proof. Mm. Um, so, you know, you take the recent controversy in the U.S. over Me Too and um, allegations of um, sexual misconduct against the Supreme Court Justice nominee Brett Kavanaugh on the one hand, and then the recent uh, allegations against Joe Biden by um, a woman, I believe her name is Tara Reid. Um, now, should you do people apply the same standards of evidence and proof to these sorts of claims? And and to ask the question is essentially to answer it, right? We 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 we, we, we can observe that people are attaching very different thresholds of proof. That it's essentially a political football uh, that's being it's a game of political football. There. So political thinking is good, politicized thinking is bad. Politicized thinking is hard to avoid. I mean, it's, you, you say, well, there are two kinds of errors I could make. I could make the error of believing an allegation that's false, or I could make the error of failing to believe an allegation that's true. And you could say to yourself, I think one error is much more serious with Kavanaugh than with, than with Biden. Uh, I, I, you know, Biden is the best hope for getting rid of Trump. And this, 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 uh, these accusations against him are tremendously inconvenient. So it would take massive proof <laughs> for me to turn against him. But on the other hand, I, I dislike Kavanaugh. I don't want him on the court. So um, at any rate, it, it, it's, it's, it is run-of-the-mill political hypocrisy. I mean, it, it, it goes on all, all the time. Um, but the, the, the better forecasters, I think, are more aware of what they're doing. Uh, it's, it's not that they might not, they, they, they can be political. They might say, look, I don't want Kavanaugh on the court and I do want Biden as president, but you know what? I think the allegations against Biden are probably as plausible or more plausible than the allegations against Kavanaugh. They show a tolerance for dissonance. They say, okay, um, it's inconvenient, but life is inconvenient. There's a great example you use of, of how to think about the way that you think about the world um, and break people down in terms of foxes and hedgehogs, the way that they think. Hedgehogs 
know one thing, but they know exactly what it is. Foxes know a lot of things. Um, I suppose we're all different. We're all foxes and, and hedgehogs, depending on the situation. The good example you use is we might be a fox at work. We might be calculating at work, but impulsive when shopping. Um, what makes for a better forecast for a fox or a hedgehog? It's the shorthand answer. If, if you use a, an American baseball analogy, the, the foxes tend to have a better batting average. They're more likely to get on base. They're more likely to score runs, hitting singles and doubles. But if you want a forecaster who's going to go, who's who's going to hit a grand slam home run, who's going to do something really spectac- spectacularly counterintuitively right, uh, the hedge a hedgehog is more likely to do it. Now the hedgehog, the hedgehogs are able to do this because they strike out so much, <laughs> because they have bad batting averages. But they're they're swinging for the fences, and occasionally, when someone is right, the likelihood is that 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 is spectacularly right. <laughs> the likelihood is it's it's, it's going to be a hedgehog. It, it's a bit like the broken clock theory, right? A broken clock is like it's right twice a day, and and there there when something major happens, there will virtually always be a prominent hedgehog theorist who's going to claim credit for having predicted it, whether it's a pandemic or a, a nuclear war or whatever it is, there's going to be a depression or uh, you, you, or, or great technological breakthrough they're, they're on, the, on the boomster side. There, there's going to be a hedgehog who is there to claim credit. People listening to this will be trying to figure out in themselves, are they a fox or are they a hedgehog? And as you rightly point out in the book, we're, we're all a mix of both. I mean, wh- what about you? What what percent fox are you and what percent hedgehog? That's a, you know, it's classifying yourself. I mean, Isaiah Berlin, the, the great political theorist, Isaiah Berlin, um, uh, wrote in his essay in 1953, I think it was, or 1950 even, um, The Hedgehog and the Fox, he tried to classify uh, Shakespeare and Tolstoy and Goethe and all these famous people as hedgehogs or foxes. And, and he, ran, he ran into quite a bit of difficulty with some of them. He said, well, you know, Tolstoy uh, was a fox who was pretending to be a hedgehog. Or, you know, they were, they were, was it the other way around? He was a hedgehog. <laughs> um, I, I think you're going to see elements of both in most in most thinkers who, who, who's, who's, whose thinking proves to be durable <laughs> over decades or centuries. Um, so the sorts of people whom Sir Isaiah Berlin was talking about. Um, I, I suppose I, uh, my vice is, is to be more fox-like. Uh, and the, the risk of being fox-like is, is you're going to be a little more dilettantish. You're not going to have the same depth that a hedgehog. I mean, Einstein or Newton, they, they were pretty hedgehog-like. <laughs> they, 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 they were very focused on, on deep <laughs> laws of the universe. And, you know, Einstein was quite emphatic that God did not play dice with the cosmos. <laughs> um, to which the famous physicist Niels Bohr responded, Einstein quit telling God what to do. <laughs> Let's talk about the Good Judgment Project then. It's fascinating work you've been doing since the mid-80s. How does it run as a project? Well, um, the early forecasting tournaments were done more on a shoestring budget, and the later forecasting tournaments had support from the U.S. intelligence community and were done on a much more um, elaborate scale uh, with a lot more computer support and and rapid-fire data analysis. And um, So the later forecasting tournaments since 2010 uh, have been... um, moderately high-tech affairs. 
uh, where we, um, we, we, we pay forecasters um, you know, modest sums of money to work with us for a period of time. It's done under the auspices of the universities and uh, instant, you know, their IRBs, ethics boards, reviewing everything. It's, it's, it's a somewhat bureaucratic uh, process, um, but there's, there's no danger to human subjects. Well, the only danger to human subjects is their egos might get through. <laughs> you, might, you might discover that you, you thought you were very well calibrated, but in fact, you're not as well calibrated as you thought you were. Um, but, but I think I take that as a, you know, that's, that's the price of become of education. So the, 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 the format of it is a, a tournament. Is, is that an annual tournament? And can anyone take part in it? Um, it's not, not quite as regular as that. Um, and my former project manager, uh, Terry Murray, is, uh, and, and, and a couple of super forecasters have created a company, Good Judgment Inc., which is a private sector spinoff from the Good Judgment Project, which is what I was running, I'm still running um, now. Um, so, and they have, a, they have an ongoing tournament called Good Judgment Open that anybody can sign up on. I, I think there are at least 10, 20, 30,000 people signed up there. And they, they, they run various competitions and do various things. Uh, some, some of them have com- you know, for, for commercial clients. Uh, they're not, whereas the work we do with the government is um, uh, sponsored research and it's designed to lead to academic publications. So, I mean, one of the things you're trying to do, I suppose, ultimately trying to do is, is, is distill the wisdom of the crowd. So it, does that rely on having people that have deep areas of expertise or equally beneficial might be have to have individuals who know a little bit about a lot of different things? Um, the wisdom of the crowd is a, is a, is a, is a pretty powerful force. Um, when we compute an average of the judgments of, of see if you have 10 forecasters making forecasts about casualties and uh, fatalities from COVID in 10 different countries o- over the next few months, if we computed an average of their forecasts, our experience is that that average would be more likely to be accurate than 80 or 90% of the individual forecasters from whom the average was computed. So the, you know, the average is better. It's better, it's better for very simple statistical reason. It's less noisy. Individual forecasters' judgments are affected by what they had for lunch, or what they just read, on, read in the news, a rumor, or this or that. You know, our heads are kind of bouncing around quasi-randomly in response to the news, in response to our moods. Um, and, but if it's because it's quasi-random, though, and, and you're, when you're bouncing that way, I'm bouncing this way, <laughs> and we, we're, but we're still responding. Each of us is responding to some, some of the same signals, but we're bouncing in different directions. The averaging process smooths it out, and that makes it more accurate. Uh, so the first order answer is that, yes, the wisdom of the crowd is, um, is a powerful tool uh, for improving forecasting. If you have nothing else, you know, consider averaging <laughs> the judgments in front of you. Um, there, we, we, we do, we, we got to be a little more sophisticated. We have some very good statisticians working with us and they help to develop more, um, more elaborate aggregation algorithms that can do better than unweighted averaging. And, uh, that was one of the big drivers of how we won the forecasting tournaments, uh, the, the first and, and the later waves of forecasting tournaments. And these were the tournaments run by the IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. You say in the book that they, they didn't want to use your forecasters going forward why was that 
you know, I don't, I don't think that's quite right. Uh, they, 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 but uh, I, I, we were in competition with uh, professional intelligence analysts working behind a veil of classification secrecy, something called the intelligence community prediction market. And our people were doing better than they were. And um, now, you know, they might say that's because we weren't trying hard enough or we didn't take it seriously or <laughs> you get the idea. But, they, they, you know, you would hope they would be taking their own your, their own prediction market reasonably seriously. Um, I think it, 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 it's a very difficult thing uh, getting people to accept something new. Um, I mean, take, look, look at someone like me. I'm I just turned 66 years old. OK, so I've been doing this for you know 35 plus years. It's been been around, been around the block. Uh, and if I were a senior intel, if I were in the intelligence community, I would presumably be a fairly senior intelligence analyst. Uh, and you know, I, I might be. Let's say I'm the China expert, and I, I've made it to the National Intelligence Council. And when the president wants advice on Xi Jinping or whatever, I'm kind of the go-to, one of the go-to people. Um, so I've got status, and people like status. And um, some upstarts from IARPA, <laughs> some, an R, some young technocrats from an R&D operation called IARPA uh, in ODNI, they come along and say, hey, we want to uh, set up this tournament in which the 25-year-olds can, can test the accuracy of their judgments against the 65-year-olds. Let's see who, who can generate the more accurate forecasts on a, level, on a level playing field. It doesn't take a lot of bureaucratic imagination to guess that the people at my age, you know, the, the boomers, the senior boomers, are going to look at this and say, "Screw that!" <laughs> you know, this, this project is going nowhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're going to make damn sure this one. <laughs> so there's there's an inevitably bureaucratic resistance uh, to it, and and I think that is uh, that's certainly a factor. Uh, it's understandable when you explain it like that. But do you think there's something else? Do you think perhaps? The phrase super forecasters, this idea of because you're necessarily talking about predicting the future, makes it almost sound not that you're claiming that it's magic, but that people will go, oh, these people are strange. They think they can see the future. You know, we're not going to give them the time of day. Is, is there a cynicism around the work like that, do you think? You know, absolutely. The, the word prediction means different things to different people. I mean, if it says, if you say I can attach a hundred percent probability to who's going to win the presidential election in twenty in twenty twenty, um, I, I think that's crazy. I, I think there's enough randomness. It's, 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 it's very very far fetched. Um, I, I, here's what we can say: we can say that there are forecasters. When you compute their average judgments, they get a little bit closer to the truth than other forecasters do. So they're putting probabilities of seventy five or eighty percent on things that happen and probabilities at 25 or 30% to things that didn't happen. And the other people are putting probabilities of, um, are, are, are less accurate. They're putting only probabilities of 60% on average of things that happen and 40% of things that don't happen. So the, the better forecasters are better at attaching higher likelihoods to things that happen and lower likelihoods to things that don't happen. They're better at spreading it out. It doesn't mean they're telling you for sure what's going to happen. They're better at, at estimating the odds a little more accurately. And if it's an odds game, and in financial markets and gambling markets and so forth, you know that matters. I mean, your, your capacity to be better at, um, at assessing the odds. It doesn't mean you, you know who's going to win the game. Uh, it just means that you're better at, at, at sizing up the odds than other people are. Um, 
So it sounds less magical when you put it that way. <laughs> Is there a danger with that, though? Let's say people, you know, a government department or a state were to employ a super forecaster, which in itself sounds very grand, and a super forecaster <laughs> says there's an 80% chance of this happening, then a politician might say, well, if the super forecaster is saying 80%, Really, that means 100%. Is there, a, is there a danger that the status these people have and a, and a high percentage prediction from one of them actually might be misconstrued, even though they've been absolutely clear, as something far more likely? Yeah. Well, it's similar to what you're talking about with bait and switch, isn't it? I mean, except the bait and switch is now, we, we're not talking about a New York Times op-ed writer, we're talking about a super forecaster. We, we're looking for some superficial status cue that tells you, you know, this is the person you should listen to. You don't want to buy, you don't have time to think about this very much. <laughs> you do have, you only have enough time to figure out who has enough status to be worth listening to. <laughs> right? right? Um, so yes, I, I, I do sense the danger you're talking about. I, I don't think we're very close to that. I, I, I know that the super forecasting did get quite a bit of publicity in the UK recently um, as a result of um, a, a book recommendation that uh, Dominic Cummings very kindly offered <laughs> to the members of your press. <laughs> um, well, I was going to ask you about that later, but I might as well ask you now. Um, Dominic Cummings has a certain reputation here in the UK that I'm sure you're aware of. Um, some people think he's uh, you know, exceptionally bright and thinks about things in a different way. And that's welcome other people. I think this happens to a lot of political advisors have, uh, you know, there's always a suggestion that perhaps they're, they're malignant or they're up to no good. And, you know, political advisors of all political persuasions will recognize that, that characteristic, I'm sure. Um, when your work becomes associated perhaps with a particular political value or a particular advisor or politician, is that a good thing for you? Or do you think, oh, no, I wish they hadn't said it because now people are going to presume I agree with everything they say? Well, when, when that whole thing came, came out, um, I, I was suddenly inundated by requests for interviews from the British press. And it was pretty much the full spectrum from left to right that was, that was asking for interviews. So I had to make some triage decisions. <laughs> you know, which <laughs> interviews was I going to give? And I decided to do two of them. And I decided to do... Now, you know, you could you should tell me whether I got this right because I I, I wanted one to be kind of a reasonable right of center publication, and I thought that, that the Times would oh be yes that's yeah that, and I thought well, I wanted a left of center one like and I went for the New Statesman. Oh, two very good choices. Okay, so those are the two I did, and uh, I, I very much emphasized that you know whether you're on the Labour Party or the or the Conservative Party or Democrat or Republican or whatever you are, you don't want leaders who are going to lead you off a cliff. Uh, you, you want a flow of accurate probability judgments mm. going to the leadership. Uh, so in that sense, super forecasting should be viewed as a pretty value neutral affair. You don't want to do stuff. You don't want to do dumb stuff. Um, <laughs> and you want re reasonable probability judgments. Um, and the super forecasters, are, their reputations hinge purely on one thing. They hinge on having a good accuracy reputations. Otherwise, they cease to be super forecasters. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Do you think sometimes association with any individual can be damaging to your reputation? Well, I'm human and humans are, 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 are you know, John Locke and all the British associationists in the 18th century. <laughs> they got it right. I mean, people are, people thinking is highly associative. <laughs> so yes, there's a guilt by there's guilt, guilt and innocence by association. Yeah, I'm sure that does, especially guilt by association. Well, of course, whenever we talk about intelligence, forecasting, the importance of getting things right, the importance of advisors getting things right, and particularly the intelligence community, particularly for this generation, Iraq will always be the thing, will always be the issue where people say the intelligence people got it wrong. How could they get it so wrong? And one of the things you outline in your book is the fact that phrases like likely mean hugely different things, even to people within the intelligence community. And the reaction of the community following Iraq was to be far clearer in attaching percentages to particular terms. That has to be seen as, as out of something that was pretty rotten, quite a positive legacy. I think so. And, and I, I think it would, it, it would contribute to the long-term credibility of the intelligence community. I, we have a lot of stories in the, in the, in the books about you know, famous miscommunication examples in U.S. intelligence when John Kennedy thought that a fair chance of the Bay of Pigs invasion succeeding was quite a bit more than 50% when it was intended to be maybe at best one in three, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, so he, w- he went forward with it. Um, yeah, so if you, if you want to learn to become better calibrated, if you want people to know what you're saying, <laughs> mm. you, don't, you don't want them to misinterpret what you're saying, uh, you, you, the, the super forecasting, forecasting tournament research agenda should be attractive to you. But if you live in a world, in a blame game world, in which, you know, being caught on the wrong side of maybe people are going to jump on you, uh, I can understand why you don't want to play the game. Um, I mean, look what happened with Nate Silver in U.S. election 2016. He says, you know, Hillary had a 70 percent chance of winning a couple of days before the election in November 2016. Um, and um, Trump had about, by implication, a 30% chance of winning, and the 30% chance materialized. Uh, now, Nate Silver deserves quite a bit of credit, actually, because most of the polls were, were, were implying probabilities quite a bit more extreme than 70% chance of Hillary. Some of the other major poll aggregators were saying it was 90 or 95%, but Nate Silver moderated it because he sensed the polls could be underestimating Trump support, and there could be correlated measurement error in key battleground states. So he moderated the probabilities down to 70. Um, I think it's probably it was a pretty good guess. Um, but, you know, try explaining to people the, the next day that, you know, <laughs> my, my 70% guess was probably the right one. You happen to live in a 30% world. <laughs> good luck with it. <laughs> and what probability did you think there was of Trump getting elected? I was surprised by it, too. I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I didn't. Uh, I, I, 
I was probably around. I mean, Nate Silver has this interesting property. He actually keeps score. He's one of the very few political pundits on the planet who keeps his track record. And so we know as a, as a matter of public record that he's pretty well calibrated, whether he's making predictions about senatorial or gubernatorial or presidential elections in the US, or whether he is uh, making predictions about football games or baseball games. He, he does all that stuff. And he's, when he says there's a 70% likelihood of things happening, those things tend to happen about 70% of the time on average. When he says 90% likely, things happen about 90% of the time. In retrospect, then, looking at things like the election of Donald Trump and, and in the UK, people voting to leave the European Union, what things should we have been looking for in the run-up to that? What sources should we have been listening to? Because you talk about how noisy the world is, and it feels particularly noisy now, all these other voices with all, you know, so many disparate and varied platforms. To have predicted Trump and to have predicted Brexit, who should we have been listening to? What sort of organs should we have been consuming from? Well, it's certainly the case that if you live in an academic kind of environment, either in the UK with respect to Brexit or, or the US with respect to Trump, that you're not likely to run into many supporters of Brexit or, 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 or Trump. Uh, so there is a bit of an echo chamber problem at, at work there. Uh, so you should wonder, you know, if I'm not, I'm not running into anybody who's offering any cogent arguments for this, <laughs> but, but large fractions of the population seem to be resonating to it, maybe I'm in an echo chamber. So it's just about diversifying that, you know, it's not necessarily that you have to listen to the most extreme voices on the opposite side, but consume at least a few. You should be concerned that, that the information universe you're sampling from is skewed. One of the um, things you highlight is that once people are super forecasters, that's to say that they're, they're better at predicting, have a, have a track record of predicting better. Once they're recognized as being such, they're in, the performance improves for a bit and then uh, falls back. I just wonder if there's a way, and I'm sure you've thought of this, um, of that confidence and, and that, that recognition obviously plays a part in improving their judgment for a while. Are there other things that you can then replicate? How do you keep rewarding them in order to keep them constantly feeling like they've just been told they're brilliant? Well, you know, we're not a big Wall Street firm, so we can't pay them millions of dollars in order to sustain their performance. So we're, we're, the, the, the rewards we're offering them are essentially status rewards. Of, 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 uh, and the major, the major thing they really like, I think, the best ones really enjoy working with each other. They, they, they're super teams and they enjoy, they enjoy the company of other super forecasters and the, the, the give and take and the dynamic of that. Uh, so you've got a bunch of people who, you know, we're, we're, I forget what we were paying them originally. It was maybe a $200 Amazon gift card or something like that, putting a lot of work. And some of them are serious professionals putting a lot of work for them on this. Uh, well, what keeps them, keeps them going? It's intrinsic motivation. I mean, they want to see how good they can get and they enjoy working with each other. So it's, it's, this is a fun activity. It's like a hobby. You don't have to pay people to work on hobbies. They, they just do it. It's just fun. And they, they get, and they also enjoy socializing with like-minded people, you know, people who also uh, like playing pure truth games uh, as opposed to the, you know, the usual partisan games that dominate politics. What is it then about that initial recognition that makes their judgment better? And why can't that last? 
Well, there's always going to be regression toward the mean. There's always going to, the world is a noisy place. So even the very best forecasters, there's no guarantee that they're going to be the best the next year. There's always going to be an element of, of you see that in sports too, right? I mean, the, 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 bad, the best players in one year tend to, tend to regress a bit. Now, there are a few just exceptional ones who manage to maintain it for years and years and years. Um, and there are a few exceptional stock pickers who manage to do that on, on Wall Street and so forth. But if you look at the year-to-year -year correlation in athletic performance or stock picking and various other you know, realms of life where there's a large skill component, but also a large chance component, uh, you, you'll, you'll see that it's very hard for the very best people to maintain their position consistently. And why is that? But you know, you, I think in the book you say 70% of super forecasters effectively stay super. The, the other 30% don't. Are, are there any other profiles that those two sets of groups of people conform to? Well, they don't, it's not that they see, you know, super forecasters is this kind of arbitrary thing we created to motivate people, you know, the top 2%. It's not like if you're in the fall of the, the top 3%, that they're all that different from the top 2%. Um, but, but except for the fact that they don't get the chance to interact with all these other supers and, and that kind of ele elevates them. People who actually score the top 3 4 5%, and don't make the super cut in a given year, they tend to get a bit demoralized and, and, and some, a substantial fraction tend to fall away. Um, it's, the, 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 it's the status uplift and the chance to work with talented people that keeps them going. Um, but even that is not enough to, you know, to pre prevent the laws of chance from taking hold and bringing some people down to some degree. But when supers go down, they don't typically go down to the bottom. They, 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 they're still above average. <laughs> And, and, and we, don't, we, don't, we don't reclassify them immediately. <laughs> it seems then that, that confidence plays a certain role in being good at forecasting. The confidence, it depends what you mean by confidence. Um, you, you do need to be, con, you need to be confident. You don't, win, you don't win a forecasting tournament by hanging around maybe for a long time. <laughs> You've got to be decisive to some degree. That's right. So you're, you're, if you mean by that confidence, yes, it's, it's, it's 100. If I'm, if I'm saying 80% and you're saying 70% and it happens, you know what? I, I, I've scored as more accurate than you are in the forecasting tournament. And I was more extreme. Uh, but if I'm wrong and you're, you're, I'm going to take a bigger hit and, then, and you're, and you're going you're, you're gonna, to you're gonna more than make up the loss in the second time around. So, we, so the scoring system is one that punishes people for being overconfident moderately severely, uh, and it, but it rewards them for being appropriately confident. So, and, and it's, so it's a balancing act. Um, and, and the thing is, it, it, you, you get punished for, for errors on both sides equally, for underestimating and overestimating. So it's a pure accuracy game. If you're talking about a pandemic, you know, people care a lot more about, if you underestimate a pandemic and a lot of people die, people are going to say, you idiot. <laughs> but if you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're making private plans for policymakers about hospital capacity and things like that, you really do want to have very accurate probability estimates. So you want to have a group of forecasters in the background, working in the background, who aren't worried about the blame game after the fact, who, who say, all I'm being scored on is my mathematical probability score here. It's probably a prior score. That's the, I, it's going to punish me equally for errors of underestimation, overestimation, and I'm just going to go straight down the line. But whereas if I'm a public forecaster, and I, I know, you know, if you get, you underestimate the pandemic, people are going to mock you for all eternity. Uh, it, it, you, you get a, a bit of a, a, a hurting effect, right? And, and all the, 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 on the, on no, no pundit wants to be caught on the wrong side of maybe on that one. So in terms of utilizing 
super forecasters um, and, and thinking about maybe using them within government, what would be the most practical way? Should the president have a super forecasting unit? Should each department have a super forecaster that's ahead of super forecasting? What's the best way to unlock that talent and put it to use through politics? I think different organizations, you know, some organizations have done this and, and there are different ways of doing it. Um, but I, I think it's best done in private. Uh, I, I don't think it's something, I, I think when the super forecaster judgment, when the, when the probability judgments are thrust into the public sphere, all the usual political distortions start to kick in. Um, you, you want them to feel that they're working in private, they're professionals, they have one job and only one job, and focus like a laser beam on giving policymakers the most accurate probability judgments and then the policymakers can make the value judgments about, oh, you know, this, these may be the most accurate probability judgments, but I know in my heart that one error would be far worse than the other, so I'm going to go this way. So, and that's what we elect people for. We elect them to infuse their values into the policy process. And I don't think most of us think of politicians as being all that great probability estimators. I, I think we, uh, we, we tend to vote for politicians who reflect our values and our aspirations and say, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I, I want people, I want society to go in that general direction or this general direction. Uh, it's not that, you know, I think that, you know, Boris Johnson's got a great Breyer score. So it's the distinction obviously between working in private and working in secret. Would it be important for them to be working in secret or, or is it important to make that distinction between private and secret? Oh, private versus secret? Yeah. I'm not sure... Wow. I think privacy implies a certain amount of secrecy, doesn't it? But I suppose you could know that they were doing the work, but that the findings were secret, or we would never know these people were working in government at all. Well, I don't think I don't think you need to go that far. No, I, I think it's fine if people. It, I, I think it's fine if you, you think that one of the things the government does uh, to check on the accuracy of the experts they normally consult is they get talented generalists to second guess them. Uh, and that doesn't cost very much, and it's it's just a just it's one, that's another layer of precaution in a for high stakes decisions. A couple of the techniques that you outline about how you can improve your your forecasting is to use this technique. I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right. To fermi eyes, fermi eyes. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> fermi eyes from the, after the physicist Enrico Fermi, which is, and I think the example you give is how many piano tuners are, are there in Chicago. Yeah. And then it's about breaking that down into the to the different questions you need to answer in order to make a decent guess. Um, so how many pianos are there likely to be? How often does a piano need tuning? And then dividing all those numbers up. Now, a friend of mine and I used to play a game called the birthday game where he would look at that day's newspaper, see the names of the celebrities whose birthday was on that day, and we would have to guess how old they were. And obviously, that's a bit easy because we knew who these people were, the celebrities. But I and I don't know if this is right, whether this is a self-aggrandization on my part. But what I would always do with some of the ones that I was less sure on was remember how old they looked in a film, <laughs> and then guess what year that film came out, and then just <laughs> add the years on. Is that a form of fermiization? Yes, it, yes, it is. <laughs> you're, you're you're taking a what looks like an initially intractable problem, and you're trying to break it down into semi-tractable components. And make guesstimates 
and you're aware that your numbers are going to be wobbly, uh, but it's a good starting point for discussion. You're, 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 you're not trying to hide your ignorance. You're trying to externalize it. You, you say, these are the assumptions I have to make in order to make progress on this problem. I'm going to make them really explicitly so you, my critics, can target them and, make, and get better answers. And we can improve the process. But we, we're not going to be able to have a smart conversation on this subject unless I am willing to take the risk, social risk, of externalizing my ignorance and revealing to you how little I know about you know, how many, uh, uh, how, how much pianos cost and how many households in Chicago could afford them and how, you know, again, so forth. It's inevitable to always think about these skills as being inherently political about trying to predict global w- events and so that countries and, and leaders can react and, you know, for the betterment of their citizens. I just wonder, just for the layperson what the benefit of having these skills is and what the benefits are of, of thinking in this way, of breaking questions down like that, of setting yourself these challenges. Do you think people who are, who are good at this sort of thing or at least even try to engage with it are more likely to, I mean, I, and I realise this would be a grand claim, but live longer, uh, be less likely to um, you know, be victims of getting hit by a car in the street? Is there something about seeing the world in this way or, or at least trying to that, has an improvement element in your own life beyond just the the, the kind of the joy of, of, of the puzzle? Yeah, I, I, I think in principle, I don't know how much evidence there is bearing on this subject. I mean, that's it's a, it's a really interesting question you're raising. Uh, on logical grounds, you would expect that people who have a good appreciation of probability would understand that the odds compound. So if you do dangerous things like uh, drive fast and drunk repeatedly, even though you've been able to get away with it over and over, you know that each time you're rolling the dice mm-hmm. and the cumulative likelihood of something really bad happening is going to be quite high at a certain point. Um, so uh, that would be true for risk, any, any kind of risky behavior. I, I think you would expect that uh, people who are probability sensitive would be more aware of how odds compound over time. And I think they'd be more aware of how interest compounds over time to the more likely to save money for retirement. Uh, they'd be more likely to appreciate uh, the importance of um, uh, picking picking jobs that um, that, 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 that a um, work for them personally, but also um, you know that that variation in money compounds also. And I suppose it, it would mean that those people are more alert to danger. You know, are they less likely to get mugged. Are they less likely to? Drinking a bar in a, in, a, in a rough part of town, are they more likely to, to realize, I suppose, warning signs in everyday life? And opportunity signs, too. I mean, they're more likely to appreciate that, you know, the stock market is a very tricky thing to master. And in fact, some very, no, a lot of Nobel Prize winning economists will tell you it's not possible to master. It's, it's a random walk with a long-term upward trend. Uh, and people who try to do the market timing and try to outsmart the market lose money on average. Mm. It's the people who buy into broad, broad market indices and are patient who understand that you know, there are limits to predictability. Uh, it's, a, it's a good prediction that the market will be higher 30 years from now, <laughs> but it's not a very good prediction it's going to be higher three months from now. Um, people who understand those sorts of things are likely to be better investors. Uh, so they're likely not only to put more money into retirement, they're likely to invest the, the retirement money more wisely. Um, when you're setting these questions, and some of them, one of the other ones in the book is, um, what's the likelihood of a particular family at a specific address owning a dog? <laughs> and you break this down into what you call inside thinking and outside thinking. 
How do you define those two different forms of thought? Yeah. Um, so inside thinking is a sort of data, outside thinking is a sort of data you can get from the census, right? These are, there are statistical patterns that, you know, the upper middle class family, the, 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 the most people living in this area are upper middle class and upper middle class families have this percentage of pet ownership and, and so forth. Uh, the the in, inside view would be knowing the personalities of the people inside the house and the kind, the kind of people they are. So this is macro whatever and micro, in effect. Whatever, what do you, whatever you think a dog person looks like. <laughs> like their dog sometimes, according to the, uh, to the rule. Um, why is it important to, to do the outside thinking before the inside and not the other way around? Yeah, well... You know, the example, one of the examples we use in the book is, is you know, you're at a wedding and um, someone has a bad taste of walking up to you and saying, you know, hey, how long do you think this couple's going to make it? How long are they going to stay married? And, you know, most people are offended and blah, blah, blah. But uh, let's say you answer with the inside view. You say, I can't, I can't imagine this couple getting divorced. They look so happy together. They look perfect for each other. I'm going to say it's 95% chance, 99% chance they stay married. You based your prediction solely on the inside view you're not likely to be a super forecaster. Uh, if you're more like, if you think more like an accountant and you say, you know, well, let's see, this is a middle-class family, the divorce rate for middle-class people with a college degree in this age range who've known each other for this long, divorce rate for the, the people in that demographic category looks like about 33%. Okay, my initial probability, I think is a 33% chance they'll be married five years from now or seven years from now. Um, and then you say, Hmm. Okay, that's the outside view. And then you say, well, it looks like they look pretty happy. But you know what? Most people can at least fake happy at the wedding. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it, it, it's, a, it, it's not very informative to say this is a happy wedding. wedding weddings are supposed to be happy. You know? uh, it's a relatively non-diagnostic signal. But if you learn you know, that the husband is a psychopathic philanderer and so forth, then, then, then you uh, might say, well, you know, I think the odds of base rate of, of divorce is, is 33%. But given the personality of the groom, I'm going to put it up to 65 or 70%. Uh, that would be based on the inside. Uh, you'd be combining outside and inside view in that fashion. But it's important to do the outside first rather than the inside. Yeah, it's important because you want to you want to start off the estimation process inside the ballpark of plausibility. Okay. And ninety nine percent chance because it looks like a really happy wedding. You just are not even in the ballpark. How important is it when you're trying to forecast of setting questions with very clear parameters? Or can you ask more open-ended questions and still get fairly decent results from a super forecaster? Um, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that, Matt. So if you say, for instance, will Donald Trump get re-elected this year? That, that's a question with a clear parameter. If you were to say uh, a, a broader question, um, you know, I, I don't know, you know, how many times in the next hundred years do you think uh, the Democrats will win the White House? Ah, yes, yes. Okay. Um, that is one of the things we're wrestling with in the latest work is how to link up these big questions that people really do care about with these sort of micro questions that we can test and forecast in tournaments. So, you know, we take some of these really big scenarios that are popular at places like Davos. I, uh, we're, on we're on a scenario trajectory, according to uh, the former head of Davos, we're on a scenario trajectory toward a fourth industrial revolution. 
in which strong forms of artificial intelligence are going to cause major dislocations in white collar labor markets by 2030 or 2040. We're not going to need airplane pilots. We're not going to need radiologists. We're not going to need lots of people. We're not going to need university professors. All sorts of people we're not going to need. Um, Hopefully, so, we still need podcasters. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> but be, the, you know, they think the bots are going to encroach even on you. But <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> But, but so that's the scenario. Okay, that's a long way away, 2030, 2040. And it's pretty vague. I haven't really, it's not a falsifiable thing. It's, it's vague. We, we don't know what percentage of radiologists are going to lose their jobs and so forth. It's, just, it's vague. So you'd say, you'd break that big thing down into small tractable components like fermiizing. You'd say, well, if that, if that big idea of the Davos people is true for 2040, what sorts of things should I expect to observe in 2015 or 2016 or 17 or 2020 or 2021? Uh, so, you know, we started this exercise in 2015. And one of the first things we put down was, you know, AlphaGo as a program developed by Dennis Asabas would defeat the world's best Go player in Seoul, South Korea in a tournament. And most people thought that was impossible. The Go would be too hard, the bridge too far. And it wasn't, the AI won. The artificial intelligence defeated the best human. So they now, now you know, our AI dominates chess, it dominates Go. It's in the process of dominating poker. Uh, we had other predictions too that didn't come true. So uh, we, say we predicted driverless Ubers would be picking people up for, 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 for in big cities for, 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 for fares, They're actually paying customers by the end of 2018. That didn't really happen. No. We predicted that the IBM system called Watson would be out, out diagnosing the best medical diagnosticians and a medical diagnosis turned in 2018. That didn't happen. We predicted robotic spending in the US would exceed a certain threshold value. That did sort of happen. So some things happened, some things didn't happen. Uh, each, so how much should you increase or decrease your, your probability of the big thing, the, the Davos thing about 20, what's where we're gonna be in 2040? How much should you change your probability of the big thing in response to all these small things, either breaking yes or breaking no? Um, and that's what we're doing uh, with, with some of these big questions about, you know, is Russia going to become more or less aggressive or is China going to become more or less aggressive? So the, the big open-ended questions, we, we can break them down into, you know, what's Russia going to do in the eastern Ukraine? What's it going to do with Estonia? What's it going to do with you know, blah, blah, blah. And what are your what are your current answers to those questions about Russia and China? Um, too early to tell. We talk about thinking like an accountant. That's a really good way to break it down. I wonder if, as well, perhaps that reflects a truth. Are accountants or people going to accountancy more likely to be better at super forecasting? And do you have many? what you would call blue-collar super forecasters? You know, we, I think we all want to be for it to be an egalitarian world in which uh, people from all walks of life are of an equal chance of becoming super forecasters. And, you know, the work we do is with the society we have. We are where we are. And... Uh, yes, we do have some people who come from unusual occupations, who are social workers, a, a, a pharmacist, a, a number of people who you wouldn't expect. They wouldn't be stereotypical super forecasters. We also have people who look like stereotypical super forecasters, kind of Wall Street, Goldman Sachs kind of people, or, or Silicon Valley people. Uh, they're, they, I mean, technocratic, 
engineering, advanced math. Uh, <laughs> but that makes they, sense. Um, but what's that? That it makes sense that people working in those industries would be initially better at this sort of thing. Yeah, they have an advantage. It's true. Uh, it, it, it's not that they they totally dominate the game, but they um, they're really good. Uh, and um, I mean, I, I it's it's interesting, you know. I've been working with, with, with human beings for a long time in my research, and it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a nice turnaround for me when your research subjects are smarter than you are. <laughs> How often does that happen? It happens a lot in this work. If people are listening to this thing, well, I'd, I'd like to find out from a super forecaster. How do they go about finding out? Is there a website where they can start to engage with these pieces of work? That would be the GJ Open. I think if you just type into your computer GJ Open, um, you'll you'll find the forecasting tournament, and I think you can sign up there. Um, I don't think we're recruiting people for the academic research at the moment, uh, but if we do change, we do we do periodically do that, and I'd be glad to send you a notification when we do. Well, that'd be great. I'll uh, I'll share it with the with the listeners of the show. Um, you mentioned Davos there, and in the book. Tom Friedman gets mentioned a lot now. <laughs> I the Davos I th- man. <laughs> the Davos man. Well, I bought his book, Thank You for Being Late, uh, a couple of years ago and haven't yet read it. Ironically, I will be late to reading it, which um it was it was only in your book. I thought I recognize that name, Tom Friedman. So is he someone that you would say is a bad forecaster? I would say he's a classic vague verbiage forecaster who is virtually impossible to pin down. Um, you know, in fairness to Tom Friedman, I think he does do some things well. Um, and one of them is generating interesting forecasting questions. So shortly before the invasion of Iraq in 2003, Tom Friedman posed a question that I think we should all wish the, both the British government and the US government had thought about. And he, he, it was a great, it's a, it's, he phrased it beautifully too. He's very, very pithy. He said, is Saddam Hussein the way he is because Iraq is the way it is? Or is Iraq the way it is because Saddam Hussein is the way he is? That is a beautiful question. (laughs) That's a beautiful question. It anticipates so much of the disaster that unfolded over the next 15 years. Now, did he predict it? No, he did not even remotely close (laughs) predicting it. But he did have the wit to frame a beautiful question. And I think there is a there has to be a space where we value people who pose beautiful questions. Uh, I don't like beautiful questioners posing as forecasters, though. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't I don't think that's that 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 is uh, produces net confusion. Um, but I think there is a place for people who pose beautiful questions. And I, it, it's only dawned on me talking to you now, talking about this, and I suppose it's obvious in life, but particularly with this, the crucial thing is to ask the right question. So the one thing the book basically is about is how to answer the questions. What is the skill you need to ask to be asking the right questions? Well, it's the fermionizing thing. It's like taking the fourth industrial revolution driven by strong AI, the, the Davos scenario in 2030, 2040, major dislocations in white collar labor markets, whatever that means, but you know, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> you take something really big like that <laughs> and you break it down into, well, who is, is a, is AlphaGo going to defeat Lee Seidel in South Korea in the Go Championship? Are uh, driverless uh, cars going to be picking passengers up for fares in major cities um, by when? Um, what, what will robotic spending look like? Um, 
will accounting jobs start to disappear because AI can take them over and so forth? With the Friedman question there, the, the, the Saddam and Iraq and Iraq and Saddam question, that's an example of a slightly different question. It's not necessarily about will this thing happen by this date. It's also about understanding the context of countries and situations. So that's another element to the sorts of questions you should be asking. It is. It's a profound question. I mean, it anticipated the question, is Iraq really a country? I mean, is it, is it possible to hold it together in any way other than through Saddam's stronghold tactics? It's just so, there's something about this, and I, you know, I say this on this podcast a lot, but talking to interesting people obviously is so stimulating. But this sort of work and engaging with these sorts of projects and, and forcing yourself to answer, ask these questions of, situations like Iraq and thinking about how you could apply that in your daily life isn't just a thrill in terms of what it would mean to be a super forecaster and, and, and the satisfaction that would bring and potentially lucrative for some people. But I think more just in, the, you know, my daily life from now on, I'm certain, well, I think maybe in the short term, I'll try and think like this more often, whether I can stick to it's another matter. But this has huge benefits for the way people see the world. I believe that's true. I believe that's true. And, and, and we, we've really been working in a somewhat narrow niche, you know, geopolitical forecasting. But, but I, I think you're right. If you, if you think about it more broadly, uh, the coping with uncertainty is something we all do when we, we're deciding to have children, we're deciding on, on, on whom to marry, we're deciding which careers to have, how much to save for retirement, on and on the list goes. And these are all essentially decisions that rest in part on anticipations about the future. I suppose not to be morbid about it, but people's big fear is, is a lot of it is around death, is the death of a loved one. You could apply this sort of thinking, and this maybe is a little dark, to more accurately predict, you know, say when your mother or father might pass away, and then that might make you think that you need to make the most of the time that you have if you think perhaps that number is lower than you would have liked it to have been. Yeah. Or is that too, is that too dark? Well, life insurance companies do it routinely. Of course. But their motivation is perhaps different to mine. Um, obviously, we're having this conversation in a context where people's fears about losing a loved one is far more heightened because of the coronavirus and and the situation we find ourselves in. I mean, did did any of your forecasters predict this pandemic in any way? Um. You know, predict is one of those difficult things. I mean, you had in 2007, 2008, you had prominent microbiologists writing uh, articles in textbooks and, and in journals, scientific peer reviewed journals, saying things like, you know, the prevalence of corona style viruses among bats in Southwest China, uh, combined with a culture of, of eating exotic meats, is a ticking time bomb. Now, is that a forecast? In some sense, it is. What they're saying, if you could translate it, they're not, they're not saying it's going to happen this year or next year, but they're saying there's a non-negligible probability, say somewhere between 1% and 5% each year. So just like the drunk driver you know, decides, I can do it again, you know, it's a low probability of hurting someone each time. The cumulative probability is you go from year to year to year. Finally hit 2020, jackpot, mm. bang, you hit it. Uh, but all those previous years, you know, you you sort of coasted through. Um, so did they predict it? These were these were the experts. And you know, I, I have a lot of respect for real experts. And, and, and these were real experts. <laughs> so they deserve a, a credit for anticipating it. 
Now, so that's a long-range prediction. You say that's a lot. 10, 15, 20 years out, they were they were saying this is this is a risk we're incurring unnecessarily, uh, and we could we could we could be mitigating it in 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 low-cost ways that we're not mitigating it, and you're going to really regret it later. Behold, 2020, we really regret it now. Now, the other question is, on a more mortal scale, uh, you know, could we have foreseen it earlier in late 2019? Um, and the answer again is yes. Um, I mean, the, the medical intelligence professionals in the US intelligence community were briefing Congress and the executive branch of the government that something really serious was happening in China. Uh, they were, before the Chinese government was publicly acknowledging it, there were, there were clear signs that things were bad in Wuhan. You could pick it up from social media, you could pick it up from satellite reconnaissance, you could pick it up from you know, all the things that intelligence communities use, right? Um, so they were picking it up and they were warning people and you know what was the net result of all that? Well, some senators apparently sold some stocks. Um, did the government do very much? No. I mean, a relationship with experts is a is a tricky one at the moment. Um, Michael Gove, who I'm sure you're aware of, who's a, apparently a keen student of yours during the referendum here on staying in the Euro- and you know whether to leave or stay in the European Union, said that we were sick of experts. Um, do you have any sympathy with that? Well, um, I had an interesting conversation uh, with, with Michael Gove on the BBC about this very subject uh, about a year or two ago. And um, he's an exceptionally intelligent guy. I mean, he very, just a, you know, it's like being cross-examined by a very good attorney. <laughs> he is very okay. smart. I've been an expert witness a few times, so I've been cross-examined by some good attorneys. <laughs> He's really good, um, and he wanted to get that quote out of me. I think <laughs> that, that you know, I'm not. No, I'm not prepared to say that that, that experts are useless. I, I think that would be asinine and very dangerous. I think there are some experts who are egregiously overconfident and need to be held much more accountable. And probably some of the experts Michael Gove was thinking about in the Brexit debate fall in that category. Uh, but you know there are other experts like those microbiologists who are warning us about uh, corona-style viruses among bats in southwest China in 20, 20, 2007. Um, we, we ignore those sorts of people at our peril. So it it wouldn't be a fair reflection of your work to say that you know if you're a disciple of Philip Tetlock's work, then that necessarily involves a, a rejection of expertise. Oh God, no. Well, in some in some sense, I am an expert, I guess, right? I'm an expert on experts. <laughs> so it, would, it would be one of those you kind know, of Bertrand Russell things, you know. I would be I would be self-negating. I <laughs> you can't believe me if I say that. <laughs> Philip, this has been such a pleasure, and thank you so much for giving me your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and all the best for the future. It's a real pleasure talking with you, man. Stay in touch. Cheers. Okay. Thank you very Bye. much. Bye. That's So are you a hedgehog or a fox? So fascinating thinking about it in, in these ways. And I wonder, I mean, those of you that have read the book may well have got the bat and ball question right. But I wonder how many of you honestly still would have been as befuddled by it as I was. Um, I just loved that so much. And I hope I get to talk to Philip again in the future. Because people like that, the thing I really like about it is, that constant assessment of your own predictions and being open and honest about the stuff you got wrong and understanding why you got it wrong and that constant quest to understand and to really care about whether you get it right or not and not to be embarrassed by getting it wrong 
and to be permanently in that pursuit of a of, of a more accurate prediction. Which in politics we never really talk about this sort of stuff. I suppose in a way the predictions are just churned out, and it no one really. I mean, people who disagree with the people making the predictions will hold them to account, and rightly so. But it's not done in any scientific way. We're not having national conversations about how do we increase our judgment, how do we how do we improve our judgment. Why aren't we talking about answering these sorts of questions now? Maybe these are the sorts of conversations that need to happen behind the scenes. But it's so refreshing to think about politics in this way instead of just trench warfare. It's just a completely different dimension to it all. Uh, I will post the link and will have posted the link by the time you listen to this in the show notes for the GJ Open, the Good Judgment Open, which any of you can take part in. And I'm I'm sure there'll be so many people who listen to this that are super forecasters. If you are already one then get in touch, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Please keep your guest suggestions coming in and let me know where you listen. It's always nice to um, know. And it doesn't have to be glamorous. It doesn't have to be exotic. Um, Heather Whitby got in touch saying she listens to the podcast while doing the gardening um, in a small village in Lower Normandy. How cool is that? I'm just sat here in my flat and someone in Normandy is listening to this while doing the garden. So uh, thank you very much, Heather. And while I've got you all, if you could leave an iTunes review, it really does help. It helps get the podcast up the charts, helps other people find it. And um, yes, I'd be very appreciative if you could do that. So thank you very much. More great guests on the way. And I am trying to get a spread, not just of different party politics, but just of different ideas like this, concepts and and thoughts around... um, politics and policy in a different way so uh, i've got some great guests lined up i hope you're doing okay in this very difficult time and i'll see you soon Ta-ra.